Hi, Vicky. Hi, Shane. Prompt for you today might might mm-hmm. be uh you can choose to answer this or not. Have you ever stolen <laughs> anything? <laughs> oh my gosh. I know. I what know. I don't want you to stop to ask on uh <laughs> On a recording device. <laughs> on, a, on, a, on a podcast I'm, that goes out to many people. <laughs> I'm more of a light vandalism kind of person. Okay. Yeah. All right. Um, you know, in the I le- I enjoy uh, looking at uh, those stickers that people the the slap stickers as the kids oh, are calling see. them. Yeah. Sure. But um, stolen anything? No. Um, the only thing that I have in my possession that is stolen was stolen by my. My daughter. My daughter's a little thief. <laughs> yeah. What? Yeah. Wait, remind, how old is your daughter? Remind she, me. She um, is almost five. Okay. Yeah. What? So what's what's um, the deal here? So years ago, so pre-COVID, I think she might have been three. So our our good friend Nancy, right? Oh yeah, Nancy. Yeah, Nancy, who we know and love. Um, we were over visiting her and her partner at her house, and we had a grand grand day of dancing, and we had many injuries, many toddler injuries at Nancy's <laughs> house. Um, anyway, we had a great fun day, and then when we got home, I was unpacking Olivia's things, and there was a very um, a small. A sparkly lava lamp nightlight in Olivia's things. So I'm not sure how she obtained it, but she obtained it from Nancy's house. (laughs) And now it's ours. Yeah, that's my stealing things. Yeah. That's, oh, that's, that's amazing. I love that you still have it. Do you plug it in? Do you use it? Yeah. Yeah. Except I'm, I'm like a nervous Nelly about electrical things. Oh, I so it's see. Only, we only plug it in sometimes. It's no. a special treat. No, that's still nice. That's yeah. a, you can you can treasure forever. I can treasure, yeah. A little piece of Nancy <laughs> in my house all the time. Well, what about you? No, I don't want to talk about it. <laughs> <laughs> Science is fascinating. But don't just take my word for it. Join us as we hear stories from scientists for everyone. I'm Shane Hanlon. And I'm Vicki Thompson. And this is Third Pod from the Sun. Apparently, your daughter, Vicki, isn't the only one who enjoys stealing things. (laughs) Uh, (laughs) Bless her little heart. Uh, Today, we are talking about an unexpected thief. The moon. Hmm. Hmm. So, producer Sarah Whitlock is here to talk us through an outer space space heist. Outer outer space heist. Outer Mm -hmm. space space heist. I like that better. Mm -hmm. Anyways, hi, Sarah. Hey, Shane. Wait, what could the moon possibly steal? So that's where things get a little bit surprising. Most of us probably imagine the moon as a big, dusty ball, and that's not totally wrong. It's actually hiding water, though, water that's been frozen into ice, if you know where to look for that water. And ice water came from somewhere else. It didn't start off on the moon. So it stole its water? (laughs) That's right. But the big mystery is how it happened. Scientists have a couple ideas about the way the moon snatched its ice water. And today we're talking to two scientists, Kathleen Mant and Nicholas Hassan, who each came up with ideas about how this heist happened that they both published this year. I love this idea of the moon as an extraterrestrial thief, sneaking Mm. water past everyone. All right, let's get into it. 
I'm Kathy Mont. I'm a planetary scientist at the Johns Hopkins Applied Physics Laboratory in Laurel, Maryland. My name is Nicholas Hassan. I'm a geoscientist at the University of Alaska, currently working on my PhD in studying the cryosphere in Earth's polar region. So can you give me a little bit of background about how people first learned that there was ice on the moon? Yeah, the theory that ice could exist on the moon first came about when we started studying the the geography or the, the topography of the moon. And we observed that there were regions on the poles of the moons that never experienced any sunlight. So they were permanently cold. They were permanently in shadow. And when we realized that these conditions existed in the poles of the moon, we started to theorize about what could be stable there. Because if you look at the the regions of the moon that experience sunlight, they end up heating up to such temperatures that water is not going to be stable on the surface at all. But in these regions, the temperatures are cold enough that water could be stable on, on timescales of millions of years. Actually, I believe the coldest recorded temperature in our solar system, as we know, as measured, are inside of these lunar craters, something like near absolute zero in Kelvin. And so recent experiments have actually sent things into the craters, causing the craters to sort of explode and send out material. And that's how partly we know that there's signatures of water ice, perhaps as uh, clathrates, which which form in these extreme temperatures, right? So yeah, that would be a good moment to maybe take a step back and give us an overview of the different ways that people think water might have gotten on the moon. Basically, there's kind of like these five major hypotheses. And, you know, the the, the first one, the sort of foundational evidence is that the moon formed from a giant collision with a planetismal called Theia. So this was like a Mars-sized planet that hit Earth about four and a half billion years ago. And so that would have formed a giant ring of debris around Earth. So Earth would have had a big ring like Saturn. And that condensed into the moon. And all of that kinetic energy that's balled up into the moon would have allowed a very active geological process, for example, volcanism. And that was back in the ancient history of the moon, the moon was much more volcanically active and there was lava flowing on the surface and lava gases being released into the atmosphere of the moon. Right now, the moon doesn't have an atmosphere, so to say. We call it an exosphere because there are a few molecules that are are surrounding the moon and, and there's a cycle of the atmosphere or the exosphere. But when volcanic outgassing was present, there's theories that the the atmosphere of the moon could have become pretty thick and collisional and full of full of lots of gases. So that could have potentially delivered very ancient volatiles to the permanently shaded regions of the moon. Just to make sure I'm understanding you correctly, can you talk a little bit about what a volatile is? Yeah. A volatile is a molecule that is generally in gaseous form, like on the Earth's surface. So things like methane is a volatile, but also water is also considered a volatile as well. That's not a very good definition on Earth's surface. (laughs) So even though water is usually, we find it in a liquid form, it's considered a volatile. Yeah. (laughs) The other leading 
sort of foundational thing is what do you observe when you see the moon? You see all these craters. So we know that asteroids or chondrites have been slamming into the moon, you know, particularly during the late heavy bombardment. And that, you know, comets would have deposited water and asteroids would have deposited water. But still, this is process that, you know, maybe happened a billion or two billion years ago. And then there's also micrometeoroids, which are these small rocks that are throughout the solar system and they're constantly impacting the surface of the moon on a regular basis. We don't have the problem of those impacting the surface of the earth because they're so small that they would burn up in our atmosphere. But the surface of the moon is subjected to these impacts on an ongoing basis of micrometeorites. So there's, those are the three types of impactors that can be a source of water and other volatiles for the moon. And then the final one is from the sun itself. The sun is constantly sending out a flow of ions and electrons into the solar system. And this, this flow is traveling at billions of miles per hour and it's called the solar wind. And the primary ion in the solar wind is hydrogen or it's just basically a proton. And when the hydrogen or the protons impact the surface of the moon, it can combine with oxygen that's in the soil or the regolith on the surface of the moon and form OH, and then later combine with another hydrogen to form H2O or water. So that is an ongoing source of water on the moon that is happening all the time. That's a lot of different sources. It sounds like volcanoes, three different types of things hitting the moon, and solar wind. (laughs) So how will scientists figure out which of these different sources were how ice got to the moon? You know, experiments to pinpoint the source of the moon ice are actually already happening. Kathy published a paper this year with new evidence about which way the moon snatched its ice. Her paper is based on a NASA experiment where they actually crashed a rocket from a ship called the Lunar Crater Observing and Sensing Satellite, which goes by LCROSS for short. And they crashed this into the moon and then studied dust from the impact. Yeah, so the LCROSS spacecraft launched with the Lunar Reconnaissance Orbiter. And so these two missions went to the moon together and LRO started orbiting the moon. And then the upper stage of the Centaur rocket, it it was complete. It had all of the fuels been, had been used. So the fuel wasn't remaining in there, but they crashed it into intentionally this specific permanently shaded region because the conditions are super cold. So we expected that to be the richest or one of the richest locations for searching for volatiles. And when it impacted, there was a shepherding spacecraft that followed behind it. And that shepherding spacecraft took measurements in the infrared and visible of the the volatiles that were coming off of the surface with time as as, as it went in and crashed behind the Centaur rocket. At the same time, the Lunar Reconnaissance Orbiter was orbiting the moon and came back into view and was able to watch the plume as it expanded and make measurements of the plume as well. That sounds like a lot of timing to get lined up. A lot of crazy orbital dynamics and timing, yes. <laughs> and so this this rocket was kind of at the end of its lifespan, it sounds like. There wasn't any fuel yeah. left. Yeah, it was intentionally emptied for that because there 
if it had any fuel left in it, we would be concerned that what we were seeing was something we brought with us. So it was important that when we crashed it into the moon, it was empty. And then we tried to take into account any composition of the rocket itself that it was contributed to the plume. So that was taken into account when determining the composition of the volatiles on the moon. Okay. And what did those different species tell you about where that water ice on the moon might have come from? Yeah, so what we found was a lot of water. And in addition to water, we saw ammonia and carbon monoxide, carbon dioxide, methane, and sulfur-bearing species, sulfur dioxide and hydrogen sulfide. And each of these species was very interesting because they could be indicators of the source of the water itself, because whenever water is delivered, it's delivered with other stuff. And it could also be an indication of processes that have been occurring on the moon and in that permanently shaded region. Okay. And what did those different species tell you about where that water ice on the moon might have come from? Yeah. So what we found when we did our analysis of the composition was we focused not on the individual molecules like sulfur dioxide or ammonia. We focused on the elements that made up those molecules because when water is delivered to the moon, there are processes that can change the molecules into to different molecules like chemistry on the grain surfaces. And then there could be molecules that are lost in the atmosphere. So we had to, we couldn't just use the molecules. We went down to the elements themselves. And then what we did was we took the ratio of different elements relative to carbon and compared those to the sources and the processes that could cause that that ratio to change. What was the two ratios of elements that was really important for us was the amount of nitrogen relative to carbon and then the amount of sulfur relative to carbon. And this is important because we wanted to differentiate between volatiles that were delivered by volcanoes in the ancient history of the moon, where volcanic activity was releasing so much gas that it could be trapped in these permanently shaded regions and stored for millions to billions of years, or if it was delivered by the impact of either comets or asteroids onto the surface of the moon and then trapped in these cold traps of the moon. And we found that in general, a volcanic source was impossible to include, even in mixtures with other sources. And the reason is because volcanoes have a lot of sulfur and a lot of carbon but very little nitrogen. And we, we took the most extreme values of nitrogen we could for any possible volcanic source and could not have any contribution from volcanic gas and have the amount of nitrogen that was, that was observed to be present in the plume relative to carbon and relative to sulfur. So the composition of volcanic gas and the composition of the plume were basically incompatible. <laughs> we were able to rule out that source. Wow, that seems really exciting because that means that the water ice had to come from outside of the moon itself. So it's looking more and more like the moon stole its ice from somewhere else. Like it didn't 
come from the volcanoes that used to be on the moon. That's right. And it's still a little unclear how all of the ice got to the moon, or if there were actually a couple different ways that the moon snatched ice. But Nick Hassan published his own paper this year with a new idea about ice. His group actually thinks that the moon is stealing its water from the Earth's atmosphere as the moon passes through part of the Earth's magnetic field for a couple days in every lunar cycle. When the moon moves behind Earth, it's engulfed by Earth's magneto tail. So in textbooks, you typically see, you know, Earth is like a giant magnet. You have these field lines. It sort of creates this magnetic bubble. But in reality, the, the entire magnetosphere is like a teardrop shape or like a tadpole. And the tail, the magneto tail or the plasma tail is behind Earth. And it's always there because the solar winds are are forming the shape of this magneto tail. Well, now imagine the moon as sort of a half crescent and then a full moon. The moon becomes engulfed in this ion shower of Earth's magnetic fields. But what it's actually doing is it's disturbing these field lines and can cause them to reconnect, which diverts the ions from Earth back to Earth. And this is measured. But some portion of the ions are missing. And one hypothesis is that the ions from Earth are actually depositing on the, the, the moon. And there's evidence for this in the, as we'll talk about, there's evidence of you know, nitrogen and noble gases in the lunar regolith that sort of form an enigma of, you know, these don't seem to come from you know, the early formation or comets, perhaps they're coming from the solar winds. And so there's a way to differentiate what kind of ions are ending up on the moon, either if they're from Earth or from the sun. And so, you know, the recent measurements really since 2017, so this is quite new, show that significant a number of Earth ions, so terrestrial ions, are actually interacting with the lunar environment when the moon is behind Earth in the magneto tail or the plasma tail. And so this provided the necessary evidence for us to examine the hypothesis that maybe some of these gravitational anomalies that sure look like water phase have been deposited from Earth itself. Okay, so just to make sure I'm understanding correctly, it sounds like the the Earth the moon is moving through the tail of the Earth's atmosphere when it's behind. And as it's doing that because of the way the magnetic field works, ions, so pieces that will become water, are raining down on the poles of the moon. Is that correct? That's correct. And what's nice is we can test this hypothesis. You know, isotopes from the ice samples returned by the NASA astronauts will tell us the origins and depositional pathways, say from more recent Earth atmospheric escape or long ago by, say, comets or asteroids or by volcanism. And I know they're going to be doing a lot of this return mission to the moon, the Artemides plan, is really focused uh, on geological and geochemistry and active processes and, and ancient processes. So this is really, we're going back to the moon as an open laboratory, whereas before it was a little bit of, you know, nations competing. Now we're going back to really, you know, do fundamental science. And so I would like to see known deposits of ice or water phase that is that are actually extracted uh, from the surface and, and subsurface returned. And they've even built a, you know, a fancy new laboratory to, to look at these isotopic signatures. 
so yeah, I'm really interested in the the geochemistry there. And so you can use, you know, nitrogen and carbon and different isotopes that are really like fingerprints of how these ice deposits formed. And all of that, it's not like we're going to maybe know one day it's actually, I think by the end of the decade, we'll have evidence for or against our hypothesis. And we're excited to see it tested. And so science works in this beautiful way that we'll be able to falsify and determine, you know, which is the the leading explanation. And we're happy by this to, to, to know, you know, is it comets that could help us understand how water got on earth? Um, or is it these more perplexing processes? And really altogether, it's just the pleasure of finding things out. And so that's what's really driving us is to seek the unknown and, you know, dare to discover. The end of the decade, that's pretty soon in the scheme of science. It is. We'll know how the moon snatched its ice in no time. And having ice water on the moon is actually useful for a lot of different reasons. So there's two different reasons to be excited about ice on the moon. For me personally, it's science. (laughs) The ice on the moon is a record of the history of volatiles in the Earth-Moon system. So whatever's been impacting the moon over the history of, of its existence has also been impacting the Earth. And impacts on the Earth's surface have mostly been erased by the processes that take place on the surface of the Earth that allow us to live here, which I don't want to change that. But we have these volatiles stored on the surface and in these permanently shaded regions of the moon that have stored, been stored there for millions to billions of years that provide us with a time capsule of the history of our system and can tell us what has been delivered to the earth throughout its history that has helped to support life. Like we need water for life. So the source of water is important for us to understand. So that's one of the things that is really exciting about water and other volatiles on the moon. The other thing that is exciting is that it does create a an opportunity for a resource for human presence on the moon long-term, which I am also really excited about. And I would love to see humans on the moon on an ongoing basis, doing science, doing exploration, and, and just bringing to life these science fiction stories that we all, that many of us enjoy reading. Do you think there's enough ice that we can both use it for human life on the moon and be able to study it? Yes, because in order to study it, we don't have to take all of it and then sample all of it and analyze all of it. What we what we could do is working with humans that are exploring and digging and accessing these resources is as they access the resources, if you sample the composition as you're doing so in enough detail you can still use it because then you're creating that record that is a record long-term that can go for generations to be used for understanding. And it's the only chance you're going to get to get that record. That's super exciting. And it makes me wonder whether astronauts someday will just be able to drill down to these reserves of liquid water and have a well. Is that how that would work? 
Yeah, well, it, it would surely require new engineering and ingenuity. And that's, that's what's so cool about science and about particularly NASA is that, you know, it's kind of like dare to discover, because when we discover new things, we always come up with new ways to develop those resources. So technology kind of means the manipulation of physical phenomena. So when you find a new physical phenomena, like say aquifers on the moon, you know, how would you pull that water up? It's so cold on the moon and so hot, depending on the orientation with the sun. And furthermore, there could be new technology, like I was talking about ion traps, you know, it's potentially possible that we could actually, you know, harness some of the active ions coming from earth to form our own water. So if you're getting oxygen and you're getting hydrogen and you form OH, you can bond the, the oxygen with the hydroxyl radical and potentially garden water from the earth atmospheric escape. So instead of maybe carrying our own water, we could cast some sort of net and catch water from the earth as we go by. That's right. And it sounds like we wouldn't have to worry about running out of water on the moon if your ideas about the escape from the Earth's atmosphere are correct for where this water is coming from. That's right. And just to be clear, you know, the, the atmosphere is losing a, a, a very minute amount of oxygen or part of its atmosphere. And so this process is likely very slow, whereas, you know, previous hypotheses that are, I think, more well-developed, like uh, chondrites and comets bringing water there, those would deposit significant amounts of not just water, but other rare earth metals, uh, in this case, rare lunar metals. And so what's, you know, what's waiting for us in the subsurface of the moon? Is it aquifers? Is it helium-3? And so the moon is sort of our extension of earth and it challenges the notion that, you know, in the 70s was popular, that there's limits to growth on Earth. You know, we're, we're going to run out of resources and we got to be sustainable, which is valid and sound. But now we realize the moon may have all of this potential energy, for example, helium-3, water deposits to make propellant. You know, some people like to say the moon will be the industrial zone of Earth one day and Earth will be a giant garden or a park. So the moon offers us a way to grow from this planet. But the evidence shows that the moon is actually an extension of Earth, both geologically and potentially actively part of our hydrosphere and cryosphere. I guess that would argue, though, that we should be thinking about conservation on the moon as well, right? Rather than just outsourcing all of our are mining without thinking about it. That's a really good point because, you know, the, whatever you do on the moon, it's, it's going to sort of stay put because there's no way to kind of wash away the activity. So, you know, that's really opening up all of these topics about who owns the moon. What will we do there? How do we conserve areas of the moon or how much activity do we want to do there? I mean, very rarely will you hear people talk about this um, other than in sort of these very highly technical fields. Um, and so really, I think this is a dawn of a new era for, for the moon. You know, the moon has always been there romantically 
We even call crazy people lunatics, right? And so what kind of folklore and what kind of values and ethics will we have in the future as we learn more about the moon and more about really ourselves in this incredible uh, sort of solar system dance? Conserving the moon. So maybe someday we'll have moon day, but not just an anniversary celebrating the moon landing, like more like a version of Earth Day where we conserve the moon's resources. Wait, do we have a slogan for moon day? Like isn't the one for Earth Day make every day Earth Day? <laughs> um, make every other day moon day? Is that... Is that... <laughs> <laughs> Make some days moon day. <laughs> Make some days moon day. We'll uh <laughs> that's real bad. We'll we'll work oh, on that one. Yeah. Maybe maybe someone else could help us out. We'll with circle that. back. <laughs> <laughs> but in the meantime, that's all from Third Pod from the Sun. Thanks so much to Sarah for bringing us this story and to Kathy and Nick for sharing their work with us. This episode was produced by Sarah with production assistance from Jay Steiner and audio engineering from Colin Warren. We'd love to hear your thoughts on this podcast. Please rate and review us, and you can find new episodes on your favorite podcasting app or at thirdpodfromthesun.com. Thanks all, and we'll see you next week. Her paper is based on a NASA experiment where they crashed a rocket from a ship called the Lunar Crater Recon... Oh, no. This, that was bad. Oh, no. Lunar crater oh. observing and sensing satellite. Okay. That's Wait, amazing. Is, is the sentence that I said even like is grammatically correct? How will scientists figure out which of these different sources was how? Was how. Was how. <laughs>